Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pretty Dashi Podcast. I am Nicholas. I'm here with Lauren. Say hello to everybody, Lauren. Hello, everyone. I hope my mic is going to do okay. That was my big sigh because I had some audio issues this morning, but it is still going to be a great and beautiful morning. So hello, beautiful people, and welcome to another great episode of season four. Yeah, season four. So for those of you who aren't aware, um, this go around, I guess you could say this year, although our year starts in September, so it's always a little weird. Um, We are going to be talking about making, well, I mean, we always kind of talk about making games, but I am currently in the process of writing and designing and trying to create frustrating combat systems for, (laughs) not combat, but encounter systems for um, a game that I am working on. And we have decided that we're going to kind of go through like the process of what it's like to make a game on your own. Also, like what are the various sort of like components, like different areas to think about. And one of those areas, I mean, previously we've talked a lot about mechanics. Um, I think last time we talked quite a bit about sort of like how to construct player subjectivity. But this time around, we're going to where where idea come from, question mark. How, how make idea <laughs> inspiration we're going to be talking about sort of like inspirations for gameplay for like themes for story content and all of that good stuff yeah i am super excited to talk about inspiration because i think this is one of the key points that finally gets people into games you play something and you have that kind of inspiring moment but what's really interesting is what inspires you to get into games is invariably not what you end up making in the games industry <laughs> Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of that um, has to do with just like the nature of the business, right? The nature of like the skill sets that are valued and also like the nature of just like what you might end up loving to do later on. Right. And so an easy example for me is, yeah, if someone really likes combat, but then they are an artist, right? They're like, well, can I draw the characters or can I animate the characters or can I rig the characters, which gets into more technical art. Right. So yeah. it's very interesting to be like, what what can I contribute to that inspiring moment? But for this one, it's not about the inspiring moment. We've heard enough about what got us here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that it's more about kind of recognizing, like, what are the inspirations we pull from when working on our own content? Yeah, I would also say that it it may be worthwhile noting, at least briefly, how it is different when you're working on this sort of thing, mostly by yourself. Because in that instance, it's much easier to make a game that is like, for example, in my case, much more deeply personal, that is reflective of your personal interests and also maybe even like your personal background experiences and so forth. Because like they're all, since all of that stuff is centered in me, it's very easy to sort of like hold it all together. Whereas if you're working on making a game collaboratively, even if it's with just a couple of people, I'm not even talking about say like, you know, if you're at like a big studio, Like if you're working with, say, four or five other people, then almost immediately kind of you have to there's a lot of consensus building. There's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of sort of 
um, appreciating other people's ideas and where they're coming from and using them. And even in many respects, sort of like taking a step back yourself and not sort of like trying to impose your vision on something. Whereas when you're working by yourself, you kind of have to impose your vision because there ain't anybody else. <laughs> Nobody, no creative director is going to come along and tell you, you know, what what your targets are supposed to be, like what your milestones are. All of that you get to make up for yourself. <laughs> yep. And I think this is going to be a really great contrast, right? It's because Nicholas, you know, for the past year and a half, almost two years now, has been making games like alone. And obviously, yeah. as you know from previous podcast episodes, I have unfortunately not been alone in my soul quest <laughs> to make an amazing game. And you know what? Now that I'm kind of like getting my creativity energy actually outside of the workspace, I've recognized that like I've been taking on a couple writing projects just like in the background of my life that um, yeah, definitely give me that urge to uh, yeah, eschew all creative direction <laughs> come my own power. Uh, and then I realized that like, uh, I was like, oh, I need more. I need a higher end uh, computer now to dev on my own. Yeah, 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 you do. <laughs> At least for, for the stuff I want to do, right? And then it gets yeah. into that cycle of, man, I'm so used to working with good tool, good tools and scare quotes, um, you know, or, you know, higher end tools. I only want to make 3D games. I like Unreal Engine, et cetera. And then suddenly you realize, ooh, that is Lauren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, suddenly, suddenly your ten-year-old laptop doesn't really. Yeah. <laughs> well, you anymore. know, Unreal had to go and become Unreal Five. So I don't know what they were thinking. Anyway, so I think this is a really great contrast, right? It's first we're going to talk about how Nicholas got his inspiration, right, for his project as well. But then also I think contrasting it with, well, then how do you get inspiration not just for yourself, right, or for a game? For, by yourself versus then we'll learn more and how do you take those kind of same inspirations and potentially turn them into you know a much much larger project where yeah. your inspiration may end up on the cutting floor but also may end up then being evolved by someone else into something different yeah so for me personally i wanted to begin by breaking my inspirations down into two broad categories Uh, The first I'm going to label, roughly speaking, like historical influences. And the second I'm going to call uh, literary slash, I guess you could say media influences. So like the first one is more kind of like sociological in its like humanist orientation. And the other is more artsy fartsy in its humanist orientation. But these two things obviously will have overlap, but I kind of want to talk about them separately first then how they combine because then that sort of combination will then lead us into as lauren said a broader discussion of like how you take like sort of i guess you could say isolatable ideas and how sort of they contribute to a broader like total creative package so um on the historical front so i guess i should note that the the game is set in a very specific time period it's set I mean, it begins in 1903, and the current act that I'm working on takes place in 1905, um, roughly around the time when, I guess you could say, a lot of like geopolitical relationships were in like almost complete flux. Um, this is sort of the period of like a kind of like second imperialism, when especially countries that had uh, considered themselves to be sort of previously on like the margins of society were now starting to assert themselves militarily and, you know, in all the great fun colonial ways. Fun is in scare quotes in that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, what, you said it's set during the period of time, but what year is this? I may have missed it in the... Oh, I said, uh, so it starts in 1903. 
starts uh, but, in 1903. Okay. But we very quickly move away from 1903, and much of both the first act and the second act take place in 1905. Um, and the reason for that is because the these the character the type of character that the game centers on, which are these like psychic. I guess I should explain this first. the The main character Ohatsu is technically. Oh, at least at the at, sort of like for most of the game is only going to be between the ages of one and a half to like seven years old, but will have matured to a full adult very quickly in her life because she is this she is one of many aberrations. And again, that too is in scare quotes that have emerged in the context of what is essentially like a colonialist enterprise. So the game takes place in the context of what is called a treaty port. What is a treaty port? A treaty port, treaty ports were these things that emerged in the 19th century and then sort of like continued to exist until roughly the early 20th century where colonial powers were would create a territory within a sovereign country that was considered to be extraterritorial. What that means is that like it's in that country but it's not subject to its laws. So it's like sovereign territory of another country, but within the territory of a colonized nation. Um, and this particular treaty port exists in a place that is not actually Japan, but is sort of like a Japan stand-in. And within the quote-unquote history of this world, all of the nation states are essentially analogs to existing historical nation states. So there is a Japan, there is an England, there is a United States, although the United States one doesn't really appear until later in the game. There is a France, there is a Germany, there is a China. Like there, there are all of these nation states, but they're called something else. Right. So like, so like for example, the English language in the game is called Britonic. The French language in the game is called Frankish, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that sort of like a kind of the the history of this world exists kind of like in a parallel to our own, such that even though the like the individual events in that historical timeline are different they follow the same rough narrative path and in many ways yeah sorry go ahead no i was gonna i didn't mean to cut you off because i'm actually really curious like why you chose to do say a full kind of parallel yeah and what did you find the most like in like where did you really draw that inspiration from history to create a full parallel versus say like i've seen a lot of like creators in my life do like the pocket universe right yeah yeah well i wanted it to be not here's the thing that i wanted it to be his like i wanted to have a historical feel to it in other words i wanted sort of the vibe of a particular time and place within human history without trying to reproduce it because and this actually goes back to um some things that i've said in the past about games like say ghost of tsushima or I also noticed this when recently when I was watching the Netflix series Blue-Eyed Samurai, which itself claims to take place in a, his, a specific historical period, but also flubs it a lot. And also it was my my similar frustration with uh, Ghost of Tsushima because that game too takes place in a very historical time frame, very specific historical time frame. But like at this, but then it also presents this sort of like vague like hackneyed notion of like Japanese warrior culture, which was actually very different in the historical period that it's supposedly trying to represent. 
I think yeah. we definitely would need to spend a whole episode unpacking that if you did want to, because I think for me, I think a lot yeah. of our listeners right now would say that Ghost of Tsushima actually gets a lot of kind of positive uh, accreditation for the amount of history and historical research they put into it. Which is weird because so, so much I, of it is wrong. <laughs> so much of it is just straight so, up wrong. Right. But I think what's really interesting here, and then I, I think we should go into at some point, though I don't want to cut your answer off too much, is that I do think that like you say you want to create that vibe of a time place of human history, but then you don't want to kind of recreate it kind of like Ghost of Tsushima. And so yeah. I'm kind of curious, like, was the intent for your inspiration to kind of avoid being too time period based then? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, I didn't, I didn't want to. Tr- so for me, it goes back to the sort of distinction between sort of like the narrative of history versus like the sequence of events. And this is kind of a classic, <laughs> this is a classic neurological distinction. I hate saying yes. that, but I say it all the time. Um, but the point is that sort of like the, I actually, I have an example of how this works. So if you're, cl- if you're playing like, a classic paradox game. So like, let's say you're playing Hearts of Iron, you're playing Victoria, you're playing Crusader Kings, you're playing, you know, just pick one and insert in here, like any of their historical games. Like in each of those games, like what actually happens in your playthrough isn't going to follow historical events. But strangely, it's going to follow a kind of trajectory that is analogous to what happens. So, for example, if you're playing Hearts of Iron 4, like, eventually the Anschluss is going to happen. Eventually, you're going to have, like, even because you only really controlled, like, the behavior and the activities of a specific country, like, world history still happens around you. So there is still this, like, constraining influence of, like, actual, quote-unquote, recorded historical events while at the same time, because of the influence you exert over the country you control and also of, you know, the countries that you try to conquer or whose politics you try to influence, like you actually change that history. It is different from recorded history. And the game is just okay with that. It doesn't try to claim that like what happens in your playthrough is historic, like there is kind of a historical fidelity to it because that's not actually a question. What is at question is whether or not you actually feel immersed within a particular historical cycle as you play. That is the point of the game. And I may not necessarily have achieved this in my own work, but that is actually what I'm trying to go for. I want the player to feel like they are immersed within a particular historical cycle and certain like broad I guess you could say they're not, I mean, they're not really themes. They're really sort of like trajectories of like, cause you know, colonialism was something that happened in a lot of like diffuse and different ways, but at the same time, like each time it happened, it happened with certain familiar broad strokes. And so it's like, the question is when conjuring history in this game, am I giving the player the sense of those broad strokes? In other words, am I preserving the vibe, if you will, of that sort of historical moment or am I just recounting events? And I think what Paradox games do when they do it well is they reproduce the vibe. They reproduce what it... So, like, I was playing uh, Victoria 3 as the United States. And one of the things that I really didn't want to do was be an asshole, like, and sort of, like, essentially kill all of the indigenous populations so that my, my settlers could, you know, traverse west across the country. It's actually incredibly hard to do that 
precisely because like of the historical constraints you're forced to work within. So like I actually changed the history of the United States. I fought the Civil War very actually I prevented the Civil War from even happening. I diminished the power of the planter class. Like I did all sorts of things that historically I think would have been good and virtuous, but it was really really hard because like historical forces were compelling me to behave in a different way that would have been much easier. And so in that I... way like I felt what it was like to have to deal with those crises of the 19th century. Even though I resolved them differently, I was put in the same subjective state as the people who had resolved them very badly in my particular political estimation. I think that's incredibly interesting. For me, like I haven't actually played Victoria 3, but like I have played a lot of games where you kind of go through a pre-recorded events of the past. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is like the way I say that is because a sequence of events, a lot of the times when you look at branching narratives, particularly in interactive fiction, it's always about kind of constraining the branches or clipping the branches, right? Yeah, so a exactly, game over yeah. and a choose your own adventure is a clipped branch, right? You yep. died, go back to a checkpoint. But I think what's really fascinating about what you said is that there is this like historical force, this kind of sequence of events that always needs to happen in scare quotes. That's yeah. like you need to get to the West. And the easiest way to do it, right, is to command and conquer and expand and exploit, right? Yeah. Just go all the way through. And then what you did was like, no, I am not going to do that. And so I think what's really interesting here is it implies that for your inspiration to work in your game, it seems like the historical record, like the things that actually happened are still really present in your work, despite being in a parallel universe because yeah. or the parallel. Yeah, it is a parallel universe, Lauren. Come on now. Because those sequence of events, you actually have not changed in your work and are actually bringing them in. And then the player is actually going to be kind of not quite influencing them, right? This is sympathetic memories. And for those of yeah. you to recap are actually replaying things that have already happened. Yeah. And so it's really fascinating because since you are actually recounting events, you just really in your work, like you said, want to preserve the vibe of that time period in place, which is the most Gen Z thing I think I have ever heard come out of. Which is funny because I'm very Gen X in many ways. <laughs> Preserve the vibes. Preserve yeah. the vibes. I think the vibes I, are. I think people don't actually take v vibes in games seriously enough. I think they believe that they can just like take their own experience and generalize from it, or in many ways, just being like, "Oh, this feels fun," without actually trying to interrogate. Well, why does it feel fun? Like, what is producing the fun experience? Like, where does that come from? Is it reproducible, or did you just accidentally happen upon it? Because if you accidentally happen upon it through just like a billion iterations, to me, that's actually not really a good like approach to design. You should be capable of figuring out like how you got there. Like do, show your work. <laughs> yeah, show your work. But also, like, it's not just show your work. We're like, show your work, do your homework. No, no, no. We have left that life in the past. Um, I think what's really, really, really interesting about this is as we move not just into your like historical right? And that kind of representation is I'm curious then that the types of history, right, of this period influence the media that you were also, yes, like kind of ingesting. Okay. A absolutely. So, um, well, it's worth noting that, so Japan had two, well, a couple, but the major treaty port in Japan was in Yokohama and it was handed back over, control of it was handed back over to the Japanese in 1899. So since mine, 
game takes place after that, obviously the events are going to be different. But the broad sort of, and also like I combine multiple treaty ports into this one. So it's like it has aspects of like the Bund in Shanghai. It's got um, aspects of Yokohama as well. Now, but, the po- but the point of this is, is to sort of like, first of all, put white people in a Japan but then amongst those white people who think they have engaged in a kind of like dominance over that territory, create a kind of individual who represents a crisis for them. And that individual is someone like Ohatsu, who is by all appearances, someone who is like Asian in her like phenotypical characteristics. She also happens to be psychic and I'll get to why that is in a second. But the the existence of these girls being born to these white people, these white Europeans, represents for them a crisis of their sense of dominance and their sense of sort of like like essentially white supremacy within this particular historical context. Because if you go back and look at sort of like the late 19th century, early 20th century, and the way in which sort of like contact with Japan influenced art and media, like there is a lot of like cultural, just straight up cultural appropriation. You see it in like some of the works of Whistler. You see it in some of the works of Van Gogh. Um, this idea that sort of like Japanese visual art in particular can kind of be like rebranded as something that's novel within sort of like European artistic traditions. So in many ways, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like do the inverse of that. In other words, here is this, here are these, these girls who are these people's children that in many ways they don't understand what to do with. So they send them off to this school essentially as like a quarantine for them because in many ways, like that sort of that Asian-ness creeping into sort of like the very like biological character of their family structure represents a kind of like inversion of the very notion of appropriation that they are trying to inflict on this like colonized territory. And so the reason why I very much wanted it to be placed there is because one, I know a lot about that historical context. So like I can reproduce the vibe of it without it necessarily having to be like exactly what happened. Two, it also very much represents kind of what became the genesis of a sort of like, I don't even really know what you would call it, like a Japanese ab reaction. So like it is that thing that actually in many ways sort of taught right-wing Japanese politicians that what they needed to do was essentially become similarly reactionary in the same way that like that the European powers had inflicted on them in the first place. So I wanted to create a subject, a character within that world who kind of disrupts both of those poles, who is at once not this white European, but yet also is sort of derivative from them and the way in which these these girls, who then very quickly grow up in, into being women, have to use their psychic powers and their the abilities to sort of like affect other people's memories, other people's minds, to hide themselves so that they aren't treated as a crisis for like this dominant population that they live among. Right. And all and, I, and all the and all the problems that result from that, obviously. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like there's a lot of like heavy topics in here. So like I'm gonna go through and just kind of give like a couple questions so that we can kind of dig into them and make them a little bit more like digestible. Sure. The first is that um, I just have a date question. Is they say Yokohama was the main port and it was handed back to Japan in what year? Eighteen ninety nine. 
I thought you said 1899, and because yeah. yours takes, who was it handed back from? Uh, well, primarily from the British. So it was a dire- direct result of a treaty that was signed in 1896 between Japan and the Empire of Britain, because that's what it still was at the time. Um, but it wasn't legally enforced, much like the handing back of um, Hong Kong in 1997 until several years later. So the actual like giving up control of the territory to the Japanese government happened in 1899. But what's interesting about that is that didn't necessarily change the character of the place itself. Right. Uh, And I think, and that's actually was my next question. So I know you're about to dig into it, but just to give a question to our listeners to kind of frame that is like, you talked about it didn't create that change in the characteristics of it. And a lot of people I think are going to resonate with the characteristics of say, like what we think about when we think of Hong Kong, right, as being like separate from China. I think it's very interesting you create that parallel here had happened years later, years later. Wow, years Lauren, before. were we in the past? <laughs> uh, many years before. Uh, yeah. Sorry, guys, I went into my romantic period of life because uh, that's my specialty. Uh, uh, anyway, um, actually, many years before happened very similarly with Britain. And so what you're actually saying is that Yokohama within this time frame was actually a very westernized slash European port. Yeah, and so, also... It, okay. it, it had a lot of influence also on sort of like the trajectory of Japanese history at that time or Japanese culture at that time, because a lot of the educational institutions that emerged in the early 20th century in Japan, like the very, the, the kind of boarding school that appears in the game were themselves w- like run by and white European Christians. And they were Christian, they were explicitly Christian schools as is the one in the game. And so there is this lingering effect that lasts basically until the 30s when the sort of like the the fascist dictatorship in Japan brutally suppressed and forced most of the existing Christian schools to either stop operating or to sort of like change their official affiliation. So like there are a lot of really famous institutions in in Japan that formerly were Christian schools, but are technically secular precisely because they were forced by the government in the 30s and early 40s to kind of like rebrand themselves. But oh, in this okay. in this window, like between, say, roughly like, you know, the 1880s ish until the 19 mid 1930s, there is this period when there is this lasting kind of like lingering Western European cultural influence on the most basic institutions in Japan. That is then forcibly eradicated in the 30s, which is why, for example, a country like South Korea is very strongly Christian, whereas Japan is not. Because right. And I think, in, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think that's actually really interesting to dig into, like the religions like aside, is that it sounds like there was such a lingering European influence, like in the public institutions, such as schooling. Yes. Right. That I remember when I was taking a lot of your early Japanese history like classes around this issues I remember us talking about the parallelisms between I was like oh when you go to Britain this is how they've structured their schools because I went when I was also in high school and like this is how like boarding schools are just necessary and everyone has to wear like it's only three years for high school or something or like the fourth year yeah three years yeah it's, it's, to go. yeah because it's three years junior high three years high school three years Japan. high school yeah. yep exactly like it's all it all felt very much like wait wait a second like because if I had gone to college in England they were very concerned that I would not have been able to like 
they were like, well, you had four years of high school, but we don't think your senior year is equivalent to one year of college in the United, in the United Kingdom. Sorry, in the great British empire, <laughs> the year of the 2000s. And you're um, like, because it's not because it was high school. <laughs> because it's not because it was high school. But I think what's interesting is that even to this day, we can still see some of this lingering British influence in some of, yeah. say, like the basic premises. And so really by forcing your story and the inspiration from here, I think is really uh, was really to kind of highlight that not only your area of knowledge, I remember you mentioned that, but also to recognize that like there was a lot of, you know, crap going on and it felt like Europe was like, you know what? We just want to pull, we just want to pull out. We're just, you know, we're, we're scared and we're done. And yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than, than pulling out, but yeah, I mean, especially I, I mean like... yes, it is more complicated, but I look, let me surface area. Yeah. Right. Cause that was my set. My last question, right. Is that you wanted to take this place in a historical context, right. That can represent that kind of both the Japanese ab reaction towards, well, we need to be just as like, fuck you as you were fuck you to us yeah, but exactly. also that there was an initial right colonialism right approach which is interesting that you also then brought that up into right victoria three is that yeah. you were going oh man like they were like no we're gonna fuck you oh wait shit actually we regret this uh yeah. <laughs> but we're gonna like still stay here for a while and we don't we still want to control your assets oh, okay i guess we gotta leave now well yeah because you still have the they're pro- left with the yeah. mess right the japanese yeah, government exactly. and the japanese people are left with the mess okay yeah and I, I would say they didn't necessarily deal greatly with the mess, but the mess is important for sort of explaining, because I, I kind of did this backwards by talking about the history first, because really for me, the sort of like the, the primary locus of literary inspiration was a genre of Japanese, uh, I guess you could say popular fiction that emerged roughly in the 20s. Um, which sort of laid the groundwork for literally every single trope that is common in shoujo manga. And it's literally called shoujo shosetsu, or like girls' fiction. And now we're getting to the classes we took yeah. together. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> Just so we can understand how Nicholas and I first bonded with yeah, so shoujo uh, so, manga. <laughs> so so the, as, a, as, a, as a reminder for everyone, you know, in, in my previous incarnation, I was a professor of Japanese literature. And more specifically, my specialization was in media of like the the first half of the the 20th century so um i studied primarily comics in that period but i also studied you know literature uh poetry i've translated several um early modern japanese poets like that that's my shtick but the thing that really sort of turned me on to this one author in particular like i don't uh, I can't find her book on the shelf behind me anyway but it's not it's not important um uh, author by the name of Yoshia Nobuko um, she's extremely important for like the history of like Japanese popular literature in Japan. Why don't you spell that for everybody? So Yoshia is Y O S H I Y A, and Nobuko is N O B U K O. Um, Perfect. Thank you very, for spelling that. Just because I know very, that with a lot of the language that we go through here, I was like, yeah. we should start spelling out some of these names so <laughs> listeners can can remember it. All right. Very li- very little of her work is translated into English. Um, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But her work in particular established. I mean, she's often considered to be sort of like the 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 you know, sort of like the progenitor of what is now Yaoi. Hello, future Nicholas here. Um, <laughs> I misspoke. I meant to say Yuri, not Yaoi. So Yuri, which is sort of like the the lesbian counterpart to Yaoi's um, like uh, gay homoeroticism. All right, back to the episode. Um, and also just sort of like queer girls fiction 
in general in Japan, because a lot of her novels and her stories deal with the sort of the romantic entanglements of teenage girls in boarding school settings. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. There's a connection there. And what has always fascinated me about her work is, well, one, her style is unreproducible. It is, uh, it, as the Japanese is extremely arch and it's really over the top, but it does it in such a way where like she is really, really good at capturing like the interiority and sort of like the emotional struggle of her characters. She is so, so good at it. And the one book in particular that is kind of a touchstone for me, which is, um, how would it try? Anyway, in Japanese, it's um, Yaneura no Nishoujo. So that's Yaneura no Nishoujo. But it translates as like the, the two maidens or virgins in the attic, the two attic virgins. Um, and it's about these two girls who are who live together in an attic room at a boarding school both of whom had been sort of like rejected by previous like educational one of them like sort of left herself the other was rejected by an institution that she had been so they're both kind of outcast type figures and they live together in this room and their interactions with other girls and like weird garden parties and things like that but the point is is that there is one there is this like homoerotic tension between the two of them but also there is this way in which these girls who like are clearly in in they have an abject status in the society that they live in also want to find some semblance of freedom within that society and to me, this is sort of like the clearest parallel to Ohatsu, who is this person who like has these incredible capabilities, but is sort of shoved into this position, this abject position where she is subject to like forces that she can't necessarily control and her attempt to find some semblance of personal freedom within that framework. And then using that, her struggle in terms of the story, mapping that onto sort of like the player struggle to sort of like work with these like somewhat demanding mechanics of sort of like trying to manage these various stats, like not getting too out of control, but not being too under control. And that is where sort of that primary influence comes from is, is from this, these, this sort of like this commonplace of girls fiction of the early 20th century, where like it's very much ahead of its time. Like you don't see a lot of like queer fiction that early in basically anywhere else in the world i mean you could argue that especially in the in the japanese context like um you know historically japan has been much more open about like non-heteronormative sexual relations like it's they're not as hang they're, they have not historically been as hung up about it and so as a result it kind of makes sense that you would see something like that in japan whereas you know white europeans would be much more uptight about it um is but that, it, I don't sorry. want to say, is that true? But I am curious, like in a modern context, like I know a lot of there's a, it almost feels like it's done a, a 180 where like maybe in the past, like Japanese context historically has not been, has been pretty non-heteronormative. Like, and I do see that in their art, but what's yeah. interesting is I feel that at least in our laws, right? Yeah. Yeah. From a legal framework, especially, the, I mean, but that has a lot to do with the fact that like, you know, Japan right now is basically run by a very hard right government and has been run by a hard right government basically f for most of modern times, at least the post-war. 
And, you know, the United States has had a lot of influence on that. And I don't want to get into the geopolitics too much. But the no, thing exactly. is, that, but that is, sure that is a that... governmental imposition. Yeah, and I... sorry, a cultural one. Okay. And I just wanted to make, like, listeners aware of that as well. Because I think that whenever we, like, hear things sometimes when we're talking about very serious topics to a whole swath of people, right? I just want to make sure that we recognize that you and I, when you listen to us, we are understanding and recognizing of the different conflicts. And when you're oh, talking yeah. about a game set in a very specific geopolitical place with all that history, you're unpacking a lot there. And then I'm very excited for you to unpack more from your literary representation of the two Attic Virgins. I just wanted to kind of sidestep that just a little bit to make sure like, hey, now that we are in living in the modern day, we at least identify it because- Well, no, I'm glad you brought, th- I'm glad you brought this up because actually the, the historical context reflects this because these girls are sent to these schools precisely to become what at the time was referred to as like good wives and mothers. There was even sort of like a, a cliche Japanese phrase for this. And so the idea is that like, the, the same environment in which they are somewhat free to explore their like homoerotic entanglements is also the one that's supposed to turn them into like proper female Japanese subjects. Like there's literally ah. this, there's literally this term in Japanese. It's called the borrowed womb. It's this notion that like a woman's body is something that is like bequeathed to her by the state and that, like, she uses the body that is given to her as a means to produce proper Japanese, like, literally sexual reproduction, to produce Japanese subjects for the empire. And that, like, her bodily autonomy is in many ways non-existent. And a lot of even, like, feminist theorists at the time would even, like, latch onto this idea that, like, proper feminine female subjectivity should recognize sort of like the the role that the female body that a woman's body or sort of like a um because i don't want to be too sort of like gender essentialist about this but this idea that sort of like someone who has a uterus like that uterus doesn't belong to them it belongs to the state and that that uterus is only to be used for the purposes of reproducing japanese subjects and i super appreciate you trying to not be too gender gender normative about it as well yeah um because like it is that is i'm so shocked i mean i'm not i'm i'm perturbed is the correct word (laughs) Um, but for those who don't i mean perturbed is not quite equivalent to shocked but let's just it's the same yeah no no the problem was like i i I got myself like wrapped around like the like the 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 terminology of the time yeah yeah, and so like the way it's talked about them like no, no that's not quite what's going on there but anyway the point is there is this tension between the way in which a um the state believes a woman's body however you want to construe that is supposed to be used and the way and sort of the the individual subjectivity of these girls and their non-heteronormative relationships to each other and that's all in the the novel in which you or is it comic no, it's not. No, no, no. This, no, this is fiction. So, like, this yeah, is what it I was is trying fiction, to. But what I'm saying yeah. is, like, this this literary work is it a comic book or is it a? No, it's novel? the fiction. Fiction in the sort of like the like you go into a store. It is a like fiction a, book. Okay, it, it I just wanted book. to make sure because I was like, it is words was, on a page. Yeah. It is words on a page, and that's it. it. Um, and so the reason why I pointed that out, I, I realize it probably got a little bit confusing because I also mentioned shoujo manga. But the reason for that is because that's actually explicitly why a lot of like the classics of sort of like 60s and 70s shoujo manga in particular have these sort of like 
foreignized European-ish settings to them is because they're drawing on these like literary tropes that you see in much earlier girls' fiction. So in other words, the reason why one of the most famous like shoujo manga of all time is literally about this historical period of the revolution in France in you know the late 18th century, Rose of Versailles, for those of you who don't know what, it, what I'm talking about. Um, the reason for that is because it too is doing precisely what Yoshino Nobuko was doing at this time, like using this precise historical context as a way to talk about the, these sort of subjective experiences of young women and girls that are not really captured faithfully by sort of like broader cultural currents. And what's funny is that because of the popularity of these media, they then become the broader cultural currents. They become things like all of the homoeroticism that you see in Sailor Moon or literally every other like shoujo manga and anime that like comes thereafter because they are drawing on this tradition of very much like women and like non-binary writers and artists writing and like sort of like telling stories about a kind of individual subjectivity that is not well understood by those who have not really sort of experienced it themselves. And so yeah. for me, the purpose of sort of like drawing upon that is not necessarily to sort of like, I don't know, like promote my feminist bona fides or anything like that, but really because like they are so good at really getting into the interiority of these characters and in many ways, that's, that, that's even why I made these girls psychic. The reason why I made these girls psychic is because then it gives me a convenient in for creating gameplay mechanics that themselves sort of are manifestations of interiority. Like you get access to other, like other characters' minds, direct access to them, and they get direct access to yours precisely because of this theme or sort of this element that exists throughout the narrative, which is this idea that they have these psychic abilities, therefore they can have this direct psychological and emotional influence upon each other in a way that can then also be represented in game terms as well. Sorry, yeah. I, didn't, I, mean, I didn't mean to do a mic drop like that. I was just trying to drink. I <laughs> love the mic drop because I think that that's kind of where when we, when we start talking about our personal inspirations, honestly, both like in both contexts, whether it's for our own work or for works that we share with others in terms of a collaborative environment, I think that we definitely tend to go super into depth on them because it's something that's super, super passionate to us. And maybe even more so when it's a personal work, like the one that you're creating. And I think that's the perfect mic drop because I do want us to at least spend the next, you know, 15 or so minutes being yeah. able to talk about how would you maybe not bring that into a kind of collaborative space, but maybe how you would bring that into a collaborative space as as well as it ends directly into right a gameplay application which is telepathy right as a mechanic and not so much telepathy as i'm lifting a heavy object and throwing at someone but also actually i am telepathically like re reading your mind right that is one instance right and also um, like altering your subjective state that is a, that is a common like refrain throughout the text is that characters are making each other feel particular ways about what's going on around them in an attempt to manipulate them. Yep. And because of that, like the school very dark side. Yeah. It does something very cruel because like at the same time that it gives them this ability to sort of empathize with each other very deeply, it also gives them this ability to hurt each other in 
much, much more profound ways, like ways that sort of scar you emotionally as well as physically. I mean, I, I mean, knowing emotional manipulators just in the real world that are not psychic, I <laughs> would hate to imagine what those types of people in my life would be like if they were psychic and then just would be like, I get to empathize. And I think for me, like, what's really interesting, right, is when you get so invested into your own personal work, I know that I myself have a really strong tendency to just dive headfirst into it and to explaining it when I bring that to my collaborators. Yeah. So I'm super curious, like, with the kind of time remaining we have here on this episode, I really did want our listeners to kind of hear your personal inspirations. But I think what would be really interesting is when we look at taking those personal inspirations now and bringing them kind of to that collaborative level, how would you go about creating that? kind of same level of like passion and drive right while also trying to you know basically take this whole episode down and now you're presenting it to your team or you want to bring in collaborators to your project kind of how do we how do we do that kind of collaborative inspiration at least how would you go about it and maybe that's a good kind of like ending and kind of understanding that relationship well i think the first thing you need to do is you need to sort of like take stock of what aspects of your own project that you have had to kind of dial yourself back on? Like, for example, did you use pre-rendered assets? Did you like what what sorts of things are you using that you didn't necessarily create yourself? And those are the kinds of things that you can then go to other people and and sort of like get them involved. So like if you wanted to say have a character artist or someone who will like do like, you know, if you're doing a visual novel, someone who is going to work on the sprites or if you want to work with somebody who is much better at coding and can do the encounter design much better than you can, or at least much better than I can. Like I can do it well enough. Like my version of the combat mechanics is passable. It's probably pretty clunky. And I imagine anyone who has more experience with encounter design could take a look at it and clean it up a lot and create something that is much more modular and reproducible and sort of like then just makes everyone's life a lot easier. Um, I could sort of, you know, write up character. I could write up descriptions of the various characters, and then I could go to, you know, a char- I could go to say a two D artist, and then be like, you know, what what do you imagine these girls like? Well, what do you think the visual vi- vibe should be? Um, you could go to someone who, like, I used just classical music. I clipped classical music and I use it throughout the the game. But then I could go to a composer and say, like, hey, like, you know, like what would you do with this like well how would you recreate this vibe like there are all sorts of aspects of the game that you can identify that you aren't necessarily like for me the strongest part of the game and the real and the reason why i wrote a visual novel is because i'm a i'm sorry this is going to sound really egotistical i'm a good writer like i know how to write it's and not a good it's not <laughs> egotistical to say that you have a skill that others do not Anyway, that is, went, that is I'm not an artist. I can't code as well. I bet someone could do better in counter design. But I guess by saying that I am good at this one thing, <laughs> I fuck you, Lauren. <laughs> anyway, that, okay. yeah, no, no. But the point. What the are point we is, talking about? The point no is self-deprecation like, on podcast seasons four. <laughs> is is sort of like recognize what your strengths are and maybe recognize things that you could actually like get other people to help you with, not necessarily because you're bad at them, but because that is their particular strength, whereas like writing may not necessarily be theirs. And so then the thing is like, that's how you build what what is originally just like a one person operation into, say, like, you know, a group of maybe like five or six people. 
And then from there, that also sort of like gives you the basic logic for your go how you're going to branch things out if you wanted to go to like larger and larger and larger teams. So like, for example, if you wanted the game to be much more expansive, if you wanted the game to be sort of like done in a 3D environment as opposed to primarily 2D, if you wanted the, if you wanted to have like, entire like if you wanted to literally build an entire combat system for some reason yeah. i didn't want to do that well, but you but you can expand those things out like those individuals then can turn into teams and so like you can see how this like logic branches out yeah and i can see i can see the logic but i actually want to go back to that logic and kind of question it a bit because when i okay. originally asked the question i wasn't actually thinking of i have a vision and i need people to do tasks for me Ah, uh, I see. I yeah. was going from the end, so which I think is really wonderful, right? You're going like, what are I am a strong writer, and I just want to be able to bring people into this project with my vision. I think what's interesting is that when we talk about inspiration, right? Like you have you already are working on this project, and I don't think that you would want to take it okay. to others necessarily. Yeah, I think what I'm curious about is the collective or collaborative inspiration that you sometimes find when other people. Basically, it's at the moment when you take your art style to an artist and they say, I think it would work way better in an abstract kind of modernist setting or something. Yeah. And they completely change the art style. Well, now, right, that's collaborative inspiration. And at a huge yeah. scale, you can't, like, I am not responsible for that. If I, My opinion really doesn't matter much for that art department, if that makes sense. Like, I can't yeah. go in and say, well, I actually think that's a bad call, but the creative director loves it. So I guess we're going to go with it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, versus, right, I think that that's kind of collective inspiration. So, for example, if you did start like a new project with, if we were to start a project in this same kind of historical period, I think I would be super curious to kind of understand or recognize like what would that collaborative inspiration, I guess, look like, right? Like, and or like, do you feel like it would be any different, right? This is all theory at this point, right? Is no, I don't. I actually think it would be different. I mean, yeah, I, I approached it from the perspective of like, you know, what if, what if I'm translating what I'm doing now into being, say, like the creative director? Yeah. But if you wanted it to, to be much more sort of like a bottom up organized, um, I guess you could say, project, then in that instance, like a lot of the, still the same sort of like, I guess you could say analytical tools apply. Because, you know, if, you're, if your director comes to you and says, like, oh, hey, we're going to be making a game about um, a moody gun guy who also has a sword and he fights demons. This is Devil May Cry. <laughs> uh, and, like, but, you know, we don't necessarily, like, so, like, you know, they, all they've given you is moody gun guy with sword. Well, you can go back to your own, like, okay, well, you know, I'm really heavily, say, like, yeah. This hypothetical person is like, well, I'm really heavily influenced by like Westerns and like Western outlaws. So then even though it takes place in the modern day and it's focused on like this guy who hunts demons, like in many ways, I can kind of treat him as like, you know, an outlaw cowboy. And even though it's not necessarily set in the old West, you can have a lot of similar themes about like, you know, instead of it happening in like, you know, a frontier town where all of the, the townspeople are being beset by bandits it can take place in, say, like, you know, like a ghetto in like a modern European city where people are being beset by demons. Like, but it has the same structure as sort of like those old like Western style storytelling. Yeah. 
And so like, to me, that's really sort of the important part of like taking those influences that you're familiar with, or like, it doesn't even necessarily need to be outlaws. It could be like, if you're really into film noir and you want to turn, for some reason, you want to turn Dante into like, I don't know, Humphrey Bogart in <laughs> the Maltese oh, man, Falcon. Please take, please take. <laughs> like, but the but the point is is that sort of like you know your creative director comes to you is like you know you have they've had a character artist who's created the design for this character they've had someone who's rigged it like you ha they have the basic like combat like it's going to be you know he's going to use like a, a bladed object plus a gun but then the thing is like then you are responsible for trying to give that like narrative justification sort of like ex like right. actually explain why that character does those things in this particular way and that's where you sort of take your own inspirations and the things that you're familiar with and the things that you like and you bring them in and infuse that character with them because in many ways like all of that artistic stuff that I just described can feel very skeletal. It can feel kind of like the framework of a character. But oftentimes what gives that character life is a sense of history, is a sense of story, is a sense of like um, how they fit into the world. And all of that, believe it or not, kids, is writing. <laughs> like that involves writing. <laughs> and and or similarly, like, you know, if you if you are coming from like the art side, if you're an animator and like, you know, your creative director comes to you and says, like, OK, we have this outlaw type character. Uh, we don't really know what they're going to look like. I mean, you could literally just like stick a cowboy hat on them, you know, in a duster and a trench coat or whatever and be like, oh, look, it's a modern outlaw. Congratulations. You wrote a Jim Butcher novel or. Yeah. Or you could actually do something kind of quirky. You could make the outlaw character kind of like cutesy in anime. And then there's this interesting sort of like visual juxtaposition with a sort of like this gritty character who is also kind of cute and fun. Like, but you're doing that from the artistic side through the visual design rather than from the sort of like storytelling perspective. Right. I think there's so much to unpack in this. And I just see this beautiful cat leap on into the mic, which is telling Nicholas he has been sitting here too yeah, long. Yeah, she always does this at the So end. instead of keeping him any longer to kind of ask more about detail into the questions, I think that next time we'll need to either look at this in relationship to some of the kind of inspirations that I've had in my history um, and look maybe at a real game example or kind of go more into not only the kind of uh, collaborative inspiration moments that you can have as a team, but I think also collaborative ideation or maybe brainstorming as well. Yeah. Because I think that it's really interesting that when we look at our own inspirations and we get to that personal territory, there always has to be some sort of self is what I'm hearing from Nicholas. Yeah. And I say that in that it is not... Um, because I very quickly can go into auteur theory, right? Like you have a creative <laughs> director, you have an art director, you've got your narrative director, right? you've got all these directors or these people that are supposed to have a vision. But I think yeah. what's interesting is that when you look at a bottom-up kind of approach, you recognize that it's highly collaborative, right? You'll have someone yeah. asking you questions, much like Nicholas was doing. It's like, how do you think this would look? Yeah. What are the ways in which we can better tell the story? How does the character fit into the world? Like all these different questions all require us to kind of look at the things that we have digested you could say in yeah. the past and bring them forward so before we get too far into that and now that cat is super angry and you gotta abide by the cat 
Um, she's not angry. I, she's she's just she's she just she's deserves just attention. <laughs> um, I just wanted to just thank everybody once again for listening to us. In this episode, we talked a lot about different ways uh, to be inspired, and really, at the end of the day, what we realized is that not not so much everything in our lives, but also the lives of our history, the literary media that really invoke us have the most emotions. I think it can create the end of the day true inspiration for all of our games that we really just want to preserve the vibes. So with that, thank you guys for listening to Furidashi Pod, and we will see you next month on another beautiful episode. Bye.